I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And here we are in 2020, and it is a comforting thought that a new year offers the opportunity for new beginnings. As part of the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur is about reflecting on the past 12 months and learning what mistakes we made where we might do it better in this new year. Learning from history would sure be nice. Uh, that way we could avoid awful consequences. Has that ever worked? Regular listeners are probably tired of hearing me say that the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. If only we could. There are those very wise philosophers from the past who posited that by examining history objectively, it can be mere science, logic. Of course we can learn from history. So then why do we keep not learning the obvious lessons of history? Is it because we humans are just too dumb to understand the obvious? Or perhaps there are powerful political forces which keep us in Plato's cave, which you may remember from high school, I hope, so that we believe only that which the powers that be project for us. With so many examples of what uh, look like obvious, easy lessons to learn from, say, America's tragic war in Vietnam and the pointless First World War, what gives? Why do we not just learn so we may prevent unnecessary loss of lives and destructions of cities? How is it that so with such obvious environmental warnings flashing for so many decades, we appear to be at the brink of devastating effects of preventable global warming? Why do we never seem to learn from history? If we can't learn, well, why even bother to study history? With us today, I'm pleased to have Robert Zareski. His op-ed in the New York Times is titled, The Lesson History Teaches is Tragic. The idea that we can avoid the mistake of the past is misguided. Rob Zareski, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks, Bert. It's good to be here. Rob Zareski is a professor of humanities at the Honors College, University of Houston, and author most recently of Christine and Diderot, The Empress, The Philosopher and the Fate of the Enlightenment, uh, published by Harvard Books in 2019. He's just completed a new book on the life and thought of the French thinker, I may not get this right, Simone Weil? And Simon Vey. Vey. Oh, of course. I, I just don't get French. Uh, and is a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, and Foreign Policy. Again, thanks for being with us. Yours is not the average New York Times op-ed. What inspired you to write it? Well, I'm not sure what an average New York Times op-ed is. Um, I guess I should take that as a compliment, but... Um, you know, it was less inspiration, Bert, than irritation that led me to, to write this piece. You know, we seem to have such contradictory attitudes towards history. 
On the one hand, we content ourselves with old chestnuts along the lines of George Santayana's, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Right. Now, this, I think, is a nonsensical claim, in part because the past is to history what, for example, coal is to diamonds. In other words, hmm. the past is the material, the stuff with which we form history, we compress history. Besides, this history of a study upon study reveals, we're a nation that is deeply unaware of our history, not to mention that of other people's. And besides, when we do study history and think we've learned from it, as far as I can tell, we learn the wrong lessons, all by way of suggesting that we mostly miss what the purpose of history, or at least what I think the purpose of history is, um, actually is. Well, there's so many obvious lessons. I mean, I am old enough to have been, and I was very much involved in the anti-war movement in the 1960s. I know that. And I thought, for sure, how could we not learn the obvious lessons of our war in Vietnam? Don't do it. Don't put in a government, don't impose a government that the people don't like and the people don't want. And yet, somehow, that's been... It's amazing to me how we have just refused to learn that history and that maybe they're... The powers that be, the, the the projectors in Plato's cave are showing, well, if we had just gone in and tried harder, it might have worked. I, I just, it, it's hard for me to understand that. But I suppose there's... Um, it, no, I, I, no I, and I understand that, and it's hard for me to understand it, too. But it's also hard for me as a historian to understand why we need history to know that these are just commonsensical notions that you don't impose um, a, a government regime on the people that that is disliked by the people, that is not supported by the people, right, right. that is viewed by the people as a proper government imposed by an outsider. Um, it's not as if history needs to remind us <laughs> that this is a bad move. We simply know it from good common sense. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think what history has to offer is just so much more complex um, um, and so much more elusive than what it is typically boiled down um, to be or to offer by pundits, by commentators, by high school history teachers, or even by colleagues at universities. Hmm. Well, we would very much like to believe that, as you write, at the heart of any precedent is the belief that once acknowledged, it is actionable. A historical precedent offers not only a pattern, but also a promise. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds like some degree of hope. Please say more about this. <laughs> if it's hope you're after... <laughs> I'm in the wrong place, I can tell. <laughs> um, but, but more about that in a bit, perhaps. But... Um, the line that you just quoted that I wrote in my op-ed piece in the Times brings us back to the uh, the line from Santayana, namely that many historians, and more importantly, at least today, many more international relations theorists, that for them, history is conceived as a kind of blueprint, a kind of guide uh-huh. to the present. Uh-huh. In other words, all we need to do is study, say, how another nation responded in 
the near or the distant past to a situation that seems to resemble uh, resemble our own situation in order to know what to do or mm. what not to do. Um, but it simply isn't so straightforward as far as I can tell, in part because of the very nature of history, the ways in which we make it sensible, mm. the way in which we look to the past, which is really just one damn thing after another, <laughs> um, in order to find a pattern, in order to find a meaning, in order to find a series of causal connections. Um, this entails, this implies that it is a series of unique events. And so if these events are in fact unique, specific to their time and place, uh, they simply cannot serve as a blueprint. Uh, we're not talking about experiments that can, re that can be replicated, um, yeah. replicated in a laboratory. Right. Uh, we're talking about events that took place at moments in our history that simply will not reoccur. They were unique events. And for this reason alone, um, um, it seems to me that historians are not best suited to tell us what is best. Um, um, how we can best respond to a situation in our own day. I think the task of historians is something quite different. Um, um, and that when we are looked for, or we're looked to for wisdom about how we should respond to a contemporary crisis, um, we're really no better than soothsayers. Well, given that common sense seems to be not particularly common at all, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and policymakers sometimes, you know, hire uh, people from academia to help guide them to, you know, look at history. I mean, for example, you know, American policy uh, toward the Middle East, uh, I don't know if any uh, uh, professors of history were <laughs> sought at all, and you know, for for Bush and Cheney, for example, with the war in Iraq. Uh, mm -hmm. But one would like to think that <laughs> history professors could have said, "Yeah, maybe this isn't such a good idea." Uh, what are your well? Thinking? I mean, what history professors are in a position to do, Bert, is to um, explain to policymakers. Um, what is, and um, they're in a position to explain to policymakers um, the context uh, and the content yes. of the nation with which they are dealing, what the history is, uh, what the dynamics are between the various peoples who constitute that that, that, that nation, um, the ways in which they responded to earlier threats. Uh -huh. And so to that degree, absolutely, um, historians are essential. Um, my position, though, is that once all of that information is provided, it falls short of a blueprint yes. or of a checklist <laughs> um, because between the time that these events transpired in the past that the history is re that the historian is recounting 
and the present moment. Yeah. Things have changed. Things have shifted, um, and uh, there are new dynamics. There are new relationships. There's an utterly new context that has to be taken into account. Um, mm. And there, it's not so much um, 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 history that can teach us the best way in which to respond. I really think it's tragedy that can teach us the best way in which to respond. And I think that this ultimately was the goal of Thucydides. Um, and it, in a way, is tragic, and this is what I try to suggest in my op-ed, it's tragic how we have misread Thucydides over the centuries, um, that he's not the kind of historian that we've cracked him up to be over the years. Mm. Yeah, as as you said, that uh, although... Uh, as as he is often considered the father of scientific or objective history, he didn't think of himself as that. Well, you know, it'd be nice if, if you know, looking at new factors that come in. You know, you could take the the uh, the method, the the process which has already happened, and you know, put that into the test tube, uh, and you know, have a logic there <laughs> that this factor will result this way like often happens in science uh what is what did he mean uh, by uh this concept that's sort of projected on him of scientific or objective history has it been a standard of some sort used consistently since then and how has that worked well um you know it's an excellent question and uh there's no simple answer i i, I think the first thing we have to keep in mind um, um or need to recall um, is that Thucydides was not a professional historian. Um, he was a 5th century Athenian who um, was a general. Um, he was what the Athenians called a strategos. Um, and it's important to say something about the nature of the strategos. Athens, as I'm sure you know, was a radical democracy. Um, all of its citizens... Um, served in a variety of um, uh, civic positions, civil positions, over the course of their lives once they became adults. Um, and they were chosen for these positions by the drawing of lots. Uh, nobody ran for a position, a political position, or a, uh, a civil position, except one class, and those were the ten strategoi, or the ten strategoses, or generals. Mm. Every year, they ran for that position, and they were voted in, or voted out every year, by Athenian citizens. And uh, the most famous strategos was, of course, Pericles. Um, but Thucydides was also a strategos. Um, and he commanded an expedition during the Peloponnesian War. And it's one that failed in its objective. It was hmm. meant to relieve a siege of another, of a Greek ally, of an Athenian ally. Um, and as a consequence for having failed or having, or being seen as having failed by, by Athenians, Thucydides was ostracized from the city by his fellow Athenians. And it was from this distance, both literal and figurative, of his exile, that Thucydides decided to write about the war, which, as you know, is one of the most pivotal in the history of the West. 
And having decided to write about the war, he chose, in a way he nearly invented, the genre of history with which to do it. Now, he wasn't the first historian. He was preceded by example. He was preceded by Herodotus. And it was Herodotus who gave us the history of the Persian Wars, which occurred earlier in the 5th century. But not only was Herodotus not an Athenian, but much worse than Thucydides' eyes, Herodotus was not even what he considered to be a historian. Uh Herodotus was an entertainer, Thucydides thought. He was the teller of fanciful tales. And Thucydides, in fact, trolls him a few times in his own history, most importantly when he states that unlike a quote-unquote early historian, namely Herodotus, his aim, namely Thucydides' aim, was not to win applause of the moment, but instead to write a work for all time. Now, the problem, I think, is what Thucydides thought he was doing and what subsequent readers, including readers of the 20th century, thought he was doing. Um, that there was a very important difference between between Thucydides and and his readers. And this is especially the case after the Second World War, when Thucydides was cast, basically, in this role as an objective, a scientific historian, a historian who revealed certain iron laws uh-huh. of history. For example, the primacy of sea power over land power. Um, uh-huh. And so he was seen in his account, in fact, by commentators as early as Machiavelli. He was seen as somebody who revealed what Machiavelli called the essential truth of things. Uh-huh, sure. But, yeah, but, I mean, I, but the, there's a small but growing number of classicists, and I need to say I'm not a classicist, I'm, I'm a modern French historian, but the classicists that I've read, that I've talked to, argue that Thucydides was nothing of the sort. He was not the sort of historian that international relations theories present him to be. Instead, he was something more, something perhaps better than this kind of historian. But he was, according to these classicists, a tragedian. He was a tragic poet, uh, except he wrote not in verse but in prose. Interesting. Tragedy. Yeah, definitely. Just in case, uh, for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking uh, at a very large picture of history in general and how useful history may or may not be. Our guest today is uh, Robert Zareski, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled, The Lesson History Teaches is tragic. The idea that we can avoid the mistakes of the past is misguided. And when you talked about I forget which one it was referring to that naval power just is more important than land power. Well, you look at the First World War and the Germans uh, wanted to compete very much with then Great Britain, which had a uh, tremendous naval dominance of the world. Uh, and exactly. they, they tried in many different ways. And of course, as we all know, generals tend to fight the last war. So they brought in, oh, a million horses or so. About 800,000 of the horses died because they were useless uh, in this new war. You talk about tragedy. My goodness. It's just, and if we can, 
avoid tragedies like that. Boy, that sure would be nice. It doesn't seem like... Wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, could they have known that horses, for example, wouldn't be as useful against machine guns and tanks uh, and gas and things like that? Uh, But somehow uh, they didn't realize it until it was uh, too late. So uh, the idea of... of, uh, As as you write, that... uh, the Thucydides and my memory of him is not all that good. I will tell you, uh, was a, a, in his observation of the of, of Athens and Sparta in the Peloponnesian War, uh, was uh, his telling about that, his his story about that, his story history, uh, of course, uh, was uh, served as a blueprint for our own time. Uh, was it a model of realism and a blueprint for anything really? Um, or did he intend it to be that? Well, it's impossible for me to say what Thucydides intended. Well, yes, um, yes. I, mean, I can't say, and I don't think anyone else can say what Thucydides himself believed he was truly doing in his history. Um, he may have believed that these laws, these iron laws between nations existed and that they would always exist. And this is something that he reveals, you know, in these unforgettably vivid uh, terms in the Melian Dialogue, for example. But I also believe he thought there were other laws, and I'm not uh-huh. sure that's the right word, law that is, mm-hmm. that have governed and will always govern human nature. Laws that explain how we wield power, for example, or why we fear those who challenge our hold on power, mm. um, or he questions whether democracy is the best form of government, given human nature. It's not an accident, Bert, that the first English translation of the history of the Peloponnesian War was done by Thomas Hobbes, uh, the author of Leviathan. Mm. Um, um, Hobbes cast Thucydides in a very, excuse the tautology, but a very Hobbesian fashion. Hmm. Um, That this was a thinker who understood the dangers of democracy um, and favored a more authoritarian uh, form of government um, in order to save the people from themselves. Yes. In order to save the demos from democracy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Boy, you can certainly see that. I mean, authoritarianism is a heck of a lot more efficient. Uh, and uh, Well, I mean, it, actually, you know, as a number of political theorists have pointed out, it really isn't all that more efficient. Really? I mean, um, um, in terms of you know, a command economy, um, democracies, (sighs) if you compare, for example, um, the capacities of uh, the democracies in World War I or World War II against the totalitarian or fascist states, it was the democracies that showed the capacity to transform their economy to... Um, to uh, 
do what was necessary in order to mobilize the resources necessary to carry the day. It wasn't the totalitarian states. Um, yeah, so three sure. cheers for democracy in that regard. Yeah, really. The uh, the uh, uh, command economy of the old Soviet Union, yeah, didn't work all that well at that time. It was it was talk about tragedy. My goodness, mm-hmm. boy, you're mm-hmm. certainly right about that. And you know, we talk about the place of logic and science. It'd be you know, mm-hmm. it'd be wonderful to. Uh, you know that it, it's such a neat way to order the universe uh, and but if you have enough factors measured in I wonder if that can be uh, a, a useful thing for example one of the factors in human nature is fear the use of fear you know when FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself fear is very powerful I wonder if <laughs> if it's possible that, you know, like in a science lab, fear could be factored into the research that's being done, uh, it does seem to be used very effectively, especially by, uh, well, Donald Trump and, you know, various... Oh, absolutely. Uh, w- w- what about the, the fear factor? Is that something that can be measured and, you know, taken scientifically and become useful? Well, I can't say whether it can be quantified or measured uh-huh. in any in any clear um, 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 or quantifiable sense, but clearly it's a fact that Thucydides thought as one of the most influential factors in the um, in the in, in, in the war between Sparta and Athens in 431 BCE, namely, it was the sudden fear, or not, the way that Thucydides um, presents it in his history is remarkable. It's a really, it's a literary tour de force. He reviews in this galloping fashion all of the gains that Athens makes between the end of the Persian War, mm-hmm. when it becomes the head of the Delian League, which is really the 5th century uh, precursor to NATO, and the, the, the last years of the 430s, when suddenly Sparta, which was this um, passive, landlocked, conservative polis, suddenly discovers that there was this another polis which was mercantile which was maritime which was ambitious which seemed to acknowledge no limit that suddenly it was on its doorstep Hmm. and Sparta suddenly in the way that Thucydides presents it in this account, which is known as the archaeology, I mean, the the Pentecontatia, it's suddenly as if they wake up one morning and say, oh my goodness, (laughs) we have this challenger right outside our border who was threatening not our primacy, but our security. Yeah. Um, And one could, if one's an international relations type, say, well, in a way, this is how Russia felt. 
um, by the end of the 1990s, the early 2000s, when after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, NATO began to expand by leaps and bounds, and suddenly they wake up one day under Vladimir Putin, and they say to themselves, they're on our doorstep. Yes. Uh, What's to be done? Um, and Sparta was posing the very same question of 431 BCE. <laughs> and they concluded that they had to respond finally to what they conceived, what they perceived as Athenian imperialism. Wow, that is... Uh, and, and one has to wonder, could that have been predicted? I mean... Or are these things just completely beyond any kind of realm of of science that, uh, I mean, one would think, to be perfectly honest, and this may sound a little bragging here, but I remember being in the early 60s and uh, talking about the Soviet Union. I predicted, I really did, that in the 1990s, the Soviet Union would fall because the people, you know, just didn't want it. Yeah, of course, I'm a, a brilliant seer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, could they have seen that coming? And you're right. I mean, people, I think, in the United States don't understand uh, Russia's concern about NATO in Ukraine. I mean, they've had these experiences on their Western front over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And, uh, you know, if I would think if we are, you know, foreign policy people could understand, well, yeah, of course they're a little bit concerned about, you know, the expansion of NATO, uh, then we could act appropriately. But I, I would like to think that, that we can learn from history. Uh, for those who may have, um, go no, ahead. I, I think I, I, I think that we certainly can um, um, if we were to remind our policymakers um, who are blissfully ignorant of history. Yes. Um, Intentionally, you know, I the think. decider in the White House. That's certainly the case. Yes. Um, if he were to be reminded of, um, for example, the losses that. Soviet Russia yes. absorbed during the Second World War. Okay. Um, if he were to be reminded of this long-standing suspicion that uh, Russia has had towards the West, um, if he was to be reminded of the historical claims, and I'm not the one to judge whether they are right or wrong, right. Um, legitimate or illegitimate, but that ever since Catherine the Great, that Russia has had on uh, Crimea and Ukraine, um, that it's more complicated than we want to believe. Um, and it is important to be reminded of this complexity. Yes. Um, now, once we're reminded of the complexity, or once those who are in the position to make policy are reminded of this, that's not going to point to one uh-huh. response or to another response. Right. I think what it does point to is prudence hmm. um, 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 and a certain kind of humility or modesty, um, which is always a good thing. Um, It's not necessary and sufficient, 
right. uh, for the making of um, um, policy, but it's certainly necessary. Boy, you are right on that one in my humble opinion, that uh, patience and humility, whereas macho and braggadocio, you know, it it always, always gets you in trouble. And if you can learn and be a little bit humble, and one thing about North Korea, uh, I wonder how many people are aware that during the uh, Korean War in the early 50s, North Korea was decimated and lost huge percentage of its people. No wonder they're a little bit protective and scared, but we just don't factor that in. It's it's amazing to me. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift, folks. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Robert Zareski, who is a professor of humanities at the Honors College University of Houston, author of many books. He has a new one coming out about the life and thought of French thicker a uh, thinker, the- Simon Vey? Huh? <laughs> Simon Vey, that's how it's pronounced in, in French. You, but many people say Simon Weil. Yeah. Um, uh, but so um, it's for you to choose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it's amazing. I don't know. I just, I don't get it so much there. But what is there a role of science in history, given that there are all these imponderables uh, and a lack of, of iron laws. Is there a proper role of science in studying history, do you think? Aside from the history of uh, science, of course. Um, well... Uh, Pretty open question, I know. I mean, I, I, rather, than, rather than science, um, um, perhaps we can substitute the word objective. Um, and I, I think that objectivity is, 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 is very important. Um, um, mm. but I don't understand objectivity to mean what we commonly understand it by. In other words, um, most often when one asks you to be objective, what they're asking is for you to be neutral, for you to somehow empty yourself of all of your values, your preconceptions, uh, the ways in which you have seen the world, um, and judge it, judge the matter solely on its content, the way that a microscope would, or uh-huh. the way that an x-ray would. And of course, that's foolish. We're not capable of that. Um, uh, we always have skin in the game. Uh, That's what we are as human beings. Um, What I understand objectivity to mean as a consequence is the acknowledgement not just to others but to one's own self about one's prejudices, about one's predilections, about one's preferences, um, and knowing how these might color your interpretation of the past. In other words, sure. they might affect the way in which you write history. Um, and that's about the best we can do. Um, and that's, that's not unimportant. Yes. I think it is important, Bert. Sure. Um, but it's not going to guarantee the sort of account that would... Um, stand to 
a scientific analysis that could um, pass muster in a laboratory. It's a very different kind of objectivity. Um, and I also think that, you know, historians are after something, historians at their best, like Thucydides, or for that matter, like Herodotus, they're after what novelists are after, they're after what playwrights are after, or at least the very best of them. They're after meaning. Yeah. Um, and meaning is not something that you're going to reveal or discover while wearing a lab coat. Um, meaning is something that you discover while reflecting upon the past and, and upon the present. Um, and and casting that in a kind of language in which the reader will find herself, will recognize herself. And this is what the very best historians, the very best tragedians, the very best um, novelists have done. Um, You know, in this respect, um, I... I can see that as... Uh, I, I, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just thinking I can see that in so much theater that it's about some human condition, some basic truths about human nature. I mean, you talked about... Exactly. You know, needing humility. We need that as individuals, my goodness gracious. <laughs> and uh, they certainly need that in uh, as, as as nations and as countries, but boy, that... It seems <laughs> uh, very uh, evasive, shall we say. It's, yeah, no, it's in very short supply. Um, um, but um, yeah, when I when I think about Thucydides, I I I I think about, for example, Sophocles, or I think about Shakespeare. Sure. Um, um, they too were tragic writers. Yeah. And what I think we find in a Sophocles and a Shakespeare, just as we find in Thucydides, or what I find in Thucydides, uh-huh. is um, a tragic account of human nature, but it's heavy with meaning, and I think it's also um, heavy with, with, with a kind of reassurance. Hmm. It, it teaches us the modesty, or it teaches us the importance of modesty, it teaches the importance of lucidity, it teaches the importance of moderation. I think it also reminds us that even if we fail in our aim, that, in fact, I think tragedy teaches us that sooner or later we will fail. Yeah. <laughs> the effort is nevertheless essential and it's meaningful. You know, in, in, in this regard, I always recall to myself that Albert Camus, who I know a lot more about than Thucydides, um, that Camus was was an avid reader of Thucydides, just as he was of Aeschylus and Sophocles. Hmm. Um, and that um, one of Camus' remarks, one that I often think about in situations like today's in our country, is that, uh, you know, there's 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 no reason for hope, but that's not a reason to despair. Hmm. Um, that we find meaning in our resistance, um, in our refusal to accept necessity, 
in our refusal to accept um, um, these forces that 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 beggar the imagination and that seem to be unstoppable, um, ineluctable, inexorable, um, but that we nevertheless, and if we are to have a meaningful life, it's our duty to resist those forces. Absolutely. I'm sure that's one reason why the uh, uh, really timeless photograph of that kid in China near Tiananmen Square in 1989, standing up to the tank. That's just, it resonates, I think, so deeply with, with... with with humanity we ha- finding meaning in that resistance it's a uh, it's kind of romantic and you know it sort of fits in with uh, theater again and i find you know politics to be virtually all theater that uh, uh standing up and and defining oneself in opposition to that and we humans we don't want to look at tragedy. I mean, who who enjoys tragedy? I suppose some people do, but it's an essential part of who we are. And, and you know, we'd rather look at comedy, which is, of course, the flip side of, of tragedy. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can learn from it, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know. But yeah, I, you talked about uh, uh, that. You know, the Cold War was a way to frame reality, to frame the Earth. And uh, it, it, it began in 1947, as you write, that when Secretary of State George Marshall argued that Thucydides' history offered the correct framework. Uh, and that nowadays, I mean, there was the war in Vietnam, which was sold to us as, well, it's us against the Russians. Not the case at all. But that's, you know, the Cold War framing did that. And, you know, we didn't understand the realities of Vietnam at all. And it was, you know, obvious, terrible, terrible tragedy that is even continuing to this day from some of the uh, chemical weapons that were used. But now it seems like uh, that that China is uh, taking on the role of the former communist Russia. Uh, And, uh, you know, China is getting bigger. And, you know, we can all see it happening. And they don't seem to be particularly nice guys when it comes to the Uyghurs and a whole bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. How, how any any sense of how uh, does a good way to to look at that uh, aside from you know boiling it down to just us versus them? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. There's before before I try to um, to answer that question, sure. just a remark about uh, the the image that iconic image from Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Um, one, as you were reminding me about it, I thought that an excellent caption to that photograph would be the Melian Dialogue, which I mentioned just a short while ago. Um, the Melian Dialogue is one of the highlights in Thucydides' history, and it is this terse, brutal, um, um, give and take between an Athenian commander who was sent by Athens um, or whose fleet was sent by Athens to inform this very small polis by the name of Milos that they had a choice because up until then at this point in the war Delos, I mean Milos had 
succeeded in remaining more or less neutral. It wasn't part of the Delian League, which was under the aegis of Athens, but neither was it part of the Peloponnesian League, which was led by Sparta. But at this point in the war, Athens decided that you're either for us or you're against us. <laughs> we heard uh, that and before. this probably sounds familiar, right? Oh, yeah. Recent American history. Yes. And um, and so the fleet is sent to Delos, and they're told, you either join us or you'll suffer the consequences. And the consequences were um, the destruction of the city, yes. the enslavement of the men, women, and, or the enslavement of the women and children, and the eradication of the male population. And there's a give and take um, outside the walls of the city on the beach at Milos. And we're not told the names of these representatives. And we don't know if this account or if this if this exchange ever took place in the way that Thucydides recounts it. And we have to remember that at the beginning of his history, he says, well, he tells us that he's tried to, when he was in a position to do so, he um, uh, tells or he transcribes these speeches the way he remembers them. Sure. But when he wasn't there, he, he, he recounts them or he recreates them in the way, and these are his words, they should have been said. <laughs> Which reminds us, he's not a modern historian. He's a tragic artist. Yes. Anyway, this is probably the case with the Melian Dialogue. The, De- the Melian Dialogue. And what transpires in this dialogue is that the Athenian commander tells the Melian leaders, if you don't do what we are telling you to do, you will be obliterated. And the Melians ultimately say, we know you're right, but we've no choice but to resist because you're wrong, at least morally. We know that you are infinitely more powerful than we are, but nevertheless, we have no choice but to resist. Resist they do, and obliterated they are by the Athenians. And that's how he ends the dialogue. Hmm. Um, And there's no, he doesn't draw a moral from it. Right. Um, and it's he leaves it there, if you will, as an object for us to contemplate. And we can place that below the photograph from Tiananmen Square, yeah. that this young man was a million. Um, and that tank represented sheer power, might. And because you wield might, you can do whatever you want. This was the gist of the argument by the Athenian. Mm. And though you can certainly do whatever you want with that kind of power, it doesn't mean people will bend. Hmm. They might be broken, in a sense, eventually, but they will never ever bend to that. Um, And so, you know, I think that's extraordinary, but, but... but as for, you know, Secretary of State Marshall in 1947, it, 
you know, in a remarkable fashion, Bert, the world portrayed by Thucydides did resemble the world that Secretary Marshall confronted in the 1940s. You know, on the one hand, you have, once again, this maritime society, Mm -hmm. an open society, Mm -hmm. a commercial society, which was Athens back in the 5th century, BCE, and America um, at the end of the Second World War. And in both cases, they were facing a landlocked and a closed society. It was Sparta back then in the Soviet Union or Soviet Russia in the 1940s. Now, I think the difference is this, that Thucydides would be the first to acknowledge more could have been said for Sparta than could ever have been said for Soviet Russia. And, you know, Sparta shunned the arts and shunned commerce but it was a kind of democracy. Um, and when it came to what today we call human rights, and this is a mm-hmm. notion that was alien in antiquity, Athens was hardly any better than Sparta. Sparta had its own slave population, Helots. But Athens, one-third of the population of Athens, and Athens was this, this super sized polis. It was over 300,000 people at the height of its power in the 5th century. Um, It was a hyperpolis. Um, One third of that population, about 100,000 people living in Athens were slaves. Um, And so we can't forget that Athens was a slave-owning society. This is America was up until the second half of the 19th century. True. And that Athens was also the leader of the Delian League, which, like NATO, was designed to protect its members from foreign invasion. In the case of the Delian League, it was the Persians. In the case of NATO, it was Russia. But um, many people came to see the Athenian role as a burdensome role, just as there are those members of NATO over the sure. you know over the course of the late twentieth century and early twenty first century who've come to see the United States as um unresponsive and um overly demanding. Yeah. Hmm. Overly demanding and yet uh perhaps going into uh less relevance than Oh absolutely no, I mean we've Done 180 degrees with um, with Donald Trump, haven't we? Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how, uh, as you say, you know, as we trace moves by figures in history, quote, we hear not the muffled moves of a chess game, but the grinding wheels of necessity and nemesis. And Trump, of course, uh, rely praises and relies on most people being uneducated. He loves it, and you seem to draw a relevant lesson from Alcibiades who promoted military adventurism by quote appealing not to the reason of his working class base but to its discontent and desires I worry about this greatly how much of an eternal uh, universal truth might this be Uh, you know the the, the working class just uh, appealing not to reason but to discontent and desires I wonder if that's a, a factor in history, you know, one of those ingredients in the science of history that 
I don't know if we can do anything about it aside from helping lift up uh, people from there uh, and giving them some more economic freedom and not be uh, so easily led by that. I don't know if I have a question in there, but perhaps you can respond to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, first, I think when it comes to uh, trying to draw a parallel between Alcibiades and and, and Donald Trump, um, I I don't know how far we could take it, in part Uh because Alcibiades was actually extraordinarily intelligent. Well, that is different. Um, He was very agile. And... um, um, there are some historians um, um, who, and a certain reading of Thucydides makes Thucydides this kind of historian, who see Alcibiades as having been right all along, Ooh. and only um, Athens had remained true to his leadership. Um, they would have they would have eventually defeated Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. Um, we can't forget that Alcibiades was, in fact, a student of Socrates. He was a follower of Socrates. Um, some thought he had an erotic relationship with Socrates, or at least this is what he thought. Um, this is the subject, in fact, of one of the Platonic Dialogues, the Symposium. Um, but um, he was a brilliant man. Um, uh, perhaps he was too smart for his for his own good. Um, he was um, in the towards the end of the Peloponnesian War. He was um, um, accused of sacrilegious acts by the uh-huh. by Athens. He they tried to bring him back for a trial. He fled. He went to Sparta. He went back to Athens. He then went to Persia. Um, and so um, he was a man who followed his own star. Um, I think a closer or a better comparison for Donald Trump is another character in uh, the uh, in Thucydides' history, somebody by the name of Cleon, uh, who was a businessman um, who came to political power and. Um, an individual who Thucydides despised because mm. he was um, ambitious, he was untaught, um, and he was punitive, um, and he was brutal. And um, there's one remarkable, and I don't have the time to go into the details, sure. there's one amazing episode in this history uh, known as the Middle Indian Debate, where Cleon argues that democracy is a bad thing, and democracy is defended by his opponent in this debate, somebody by, by the name of Diodotus. And I can only urge your listeners to take a look at that dialogue. It speaks volumes about <laughs> the state of our country today. Um, but as far as appealing to those who fear losing what they have yes. and who fear change, this is something that Alcibiades certainly did do um, in order to um, get the 
invasion of Sicily, something that he oh, really yes. believed would redound to Athens' credit, underway. He appealed to the, in a way, to the imagination, um, to the material desires of the, of, let's say, working-class Athenians. Um, and despite the warnings of sure. the more prudential and moderate <laughs> leaders, the most important being a general by the name of Nicias, um, Alcibiades carried the day, not unlike Donald Trump did in 2016. Sure. And that was a danger in the 5th century BCE. That was a danger in 2016. And of course, my hope is that we somehow do better in responding to this danger than the Athenians did way back when. Let us hope so. i got to ask one final question, the question that you ask. Why bother studying the past, then, if, we cannot, if it cannot help us navigating the present? Well? <laughs> <laughs> um, we study the past because um, it... The reason we write history is why we write novels, I believe, Bert. The reason why we read history is why we read novels and why we read literature. Um, it's a means to explore the human condition. Yes. Um, it is a way of reminding us what makes us human. It's a way of reminding us how others, either historical or fictional characters, have responded to challenges um, um, in their contexts um, and might suggest ways in which we can respond to them in our own context. But most importantly, history teaches what great literature teaches, namely humility, it teaches <laughs> modesty, um, and it teaches lucidity. It helps us keep our eyes open, and that's the most important thing we can do today, I believe. Wow, thank you so much. Uh, if people want to follow more of your work, uh, is there some website or something? You're just Google. Oh, no. Actually, I'm a stranger to, to, <laughs> to the Internet. Um, but they can, um, they can find my books on Amazon, or they can simply Google my name. Robert Zareski. Thank you so much for being with us today. Great education. Good stuff to think about. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Through meticulous analysis of history, I will find a way to make the people worship me. By studying the conquerors of days gone by, I'll discover the mistakes that made them go awry. So that you can make the same mistakes if you just try. By studying the past so carefully, I won't repeat the same mistakes of history. You'll never make another mistake, you see, cause you'll fall asleep from reading all that history. Ooh. Pay attention, Pinky. When Cleopatra reigned as queen with Roman leaders, she was often seen. But when she had no ruling friend, she found a poison snake to bite her in the end. Oh, by damn, there, I really wouldn't recommend. I won't need world alliances when I'm commanding everyone's appliances. Oh, no brain, that would really smart to be bitten on the bottom by a queasy knot. Hannibal, our book confirms, tried conquering Italy with pachyderms. Just why he failed, nobody tells. But he never could get past the Roman sentinels. And he couldn't find his weapons in the peanut shells. An elephant is not required if I can use the media to be admired. The TV viewers, you did. 
Monday night.